Welcome to the Jay and Pav podcast experience. Please grab a coffee, set down your marking, and embark on this playful, fun, yet genuine listening experience on education. You're listening to The Staff Room Podcast with Che and Pav. We bring you a new weekly episode where we talk casually about some of the most relevant topics in education today. We are associated with the Voice Ed Radio team, where we host our radio show called The Drive. We are also teamed up with School Rubric, where you can find our podcast and so much more of our work. We host a weekly Twitter ed chat with a great group of educators. Check us out at hashtag education never dies. And now, here we are, Che and Pav, the Staff Room Podcast. And so let's dive right into episode 49. Are you a helicopter teacher? This is a very interesting topic and we are really excited to get into this. There's lots of reflection and thought here uh, reflecting into our own practice. And so we're going to get into that. And this is a uh, episode that we are basing on an article that we have read. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Let's get started with the episode right away. My name is Pav Wonder Woman Wander, and I'm joined by my co-host. He sits next to me. And uh, he does uh, funny voices, so I'm going to let him use a funny voice and introduce himself. I ain't no tourist. (laughs) That's it. That's it. (laughs) It's not a lot to go on, but... (laughs) No. Sure, if you're big on your your 80s culture, you might uh, might be able to pull that one out of the memory banks. So, of course, I won't get it. Oh, no, not chance. <laughs> no, I don't even get current day pop culture references. <laughs> nope. Pav, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. You know, and it is different this morning because yes. usually we record a podcast episode after we've gone live on the drive. Right. But today, the drive is pushed back an hour. So being highly organized like we are, we said, <laughs> why don't we do this podcast episode first? And so you're not just going on fumes for your podcast. Well, we were always going on fumes, right? We always record at the end of the school day. It's not like we were like, let's spend the day getting ready for our podcast, but a little bit different dynamic this morning. So so if we're a little bit unusually uh, refreshed as you're listening to us, that's why. I'm going to speak really, really fast, eh? Because I have have wasted all my energy. (laughs) That pre-workout is still uh, in effect, I guess. Pre-workout is in effect, but also it's the lag and the lag from the run. Okay, yes, true. So it's like it's like catch twenty two. I've had the caffeine, but then you're you're spent after you run. I get Yes, little, I agree. 
Yep. I know that feeling. So middle ground. So yeah, we're excited, but we're always excited, but we're changing it up a little bit this week. We've probably spent a series of episodes really reflecting on the current states, what's going on, whether it be George Floyd, COVID-19, the return back to school and all valuable talking points. But we've had this article sort of sitting in our bank because we've always taken articles to to discuss. Not always. We've had multiple episodes where it's like, we've caught this article. Let's reflect. Let's discuss this article. And we've had this article sort of sitting in the bank. Yeah for a couple of months and we said, let's, let's get back to an article to read that, reread this article and let's have the conversations that we thought we'd have before, you know, everything got flipped upside down. We, we did, when we first read this article uh, months ago, uh, we thought it was great and it gave us a real opportunity to be reflective. And the article, by the way, is in the episode details. Uh, the link is there. So if you'd like to read it uh, before or after, please uh, feel free to do so. Um, you know, we did our our topic on teaching philosophies uh, a little while ago, and it was a really great way to start thinking about, you know, some of the best practices that we have in our classroom. And if, you know, if there are things that we can learn to do a little bit better or things that maybe we've evolved to start doing better in our classrooms over time, but, you know, we didn't really know that there was a term for it. Now, that was kind of the case for myself with this, with this, uh, article, it was very much like I, I kind of had evolved to become, um, not a helicopter teacher, uh, over time, over my, you know, almost 15 years of teaching now. And, and so it was for me very much eye opening. I said, Oh, it's a thing and it's good that I'm not doing it anymore. So it was very interesting to read that and sort of put a term to the entire concept of helicopter teaching. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about what the article is called. It's actually called The Curse of Helicopter Teaching, and it's written by Penny Kittle and Kelly Gallagher. So um, as I mentioned before, the link for the article is in the episode notes if you'd like to have a quick read. It was a neat article because it caught my attention right away, not solely because of the title, because we've heard of sort of helicopter parenting. Yes. And I've even heard of lawnmower parenting, which <laughs> we want to hear more about I'll that. I'll talk about Just that mow later. right over your kids. <laughs> but we've never quite seen or heard the idea of helicopter teaching. And this article talked about the idea of a couple of great students that were moving on, and, and it was talking about older students. And in the concept of writing is that they couldn't write on their own. They were so caught up in wanting to know what the teacher wanted, wanting um, criteria, steps, rubrics, uh, guides for what needs to come next. And they could function in that in that scenario well and write at a high caliber. The article was talking about quality students. Yeah. But when they got to a certain level, a certain point, their ability to write on their own, their ability to edit, their ability to think about their work was not there. They couldn't do it. And so strong students were struggling to write with less and less sort of scaffolding and modeling that they couldn't do it on their own because teachers with great intentions to teach high-end skills, to be very specific with their writing, were so structured and so explicit in their instruction that at a point students could no longer produce quality writing on their own. They didn't know what writing was. All right. writing was is the word they use was, it was compliance. It was compliance. Yeah. I love that, that line that they actually use. I wrote that down in my notes when I listened as well, leads to compliance and not decision-making. Uh, so I thought that that was so on point. And, and really what happens is when, when teachers offer such rigid plans for, for teaching and you know, the, the article uses writing, but I really applied this to my teaching of math. 
And, uh, you know, when teachers are so rigid in their teaching of any subject, really, the students leave, they lose their agency. And, um, and so they're not able to do anything really on their own because they start to rely on what the teacher is going to offer them as step-by-step guides. And, and I found that I was doing that as a math teacher is, you know, I would teach the concept of doing something and then I would start writing out steps for the students to copy down. And put in their notes, hey, if you want to solve this type of problem, just follow these steps. Step one, two, three, four, five. And as I kind of went through the process of learning how to be a better math teacher, we started going through those struggles together rather than me telling them, here, follow steps one to five to be able to solve this math problem. And rather than that, we now actually spend a lot more time in like math congress or conferencing with one another, sitting in groups and talking about how to struggle through a problem and then coming up with those steps on your own. That's agency. And, you know, we try to implement that into all the subject areas. And I really enjoyed reading about that coming from a writing point of view because I never really considered it from writing. I was always sort of applying it to math, which is where my passion for teaching really lies. So it was really, really cool to see that. You talked about the math and working in groups and having discussion. And it talked a little bit about this, about editing. And when it was talking about students, it was saying, you have students that are so comfortable in the explicit teaching that they're the, the, the change in their writing doesn't alter much from draft one to draft two to draft three. It's almost the same. And that they even argue that they're, they're strong students per se, they re- talked about in the article, don't even need the secondary and third dairy drafts, which isn't a... a Sorry, I just... Third dairy? Tertiary? Okay, we'll re-record this after the drive. And I'm sure <laughs> all my vocabulary will be so much better, eh? No, um, it was perfect. I loved it. Let's go with third dairy. <laughs> I'm going to use that at least seven times a day. Yes. Please mark it down on your book. And when I get to I seven, you scream bingo. <laughs> I wrote it down. Third dairy one. <laughs> so when you get to your fourth dairy uh, draft, <laughs> the the statement was, is that the the stronger students weren't seeing any change from their drafts because they could handle the explicit instruction. That was what they were geared for, the compliance or um, masquerading as learning, the article talked about. And so there wasn't much growth from draft to draft to draft. They were strong enough to follow the explicit instruction and deliver something of quality, quality that we wouldn't necessarily give a lot of feedback per se, although this isn't a feedback conversation, but there wasn't much to drive the student to do much different. And, and I thought about this because when you talked about those math groups, another thing the, the article referenced was is that we don't want peer editors. We want peer response groups. We want to share our writing, our decision-making, our ideas, where we wanted to go with our piece, more so than an editor. The editing becomes, for me as the writer, it's my own internal struggle. Mm -hmm. And it's my conversations with the people around me about my writing that's going to go back and let me to edit. And I thought that was great. When I think of my teaching practice, this is a place where I thought, oh, I could could take this. This is a great nugget for me. It's not about peer editing. It's about peer discussion, peer response about your work. To talk with your buddy, your your partners about where you wanted to go with, with this piece. What was your emotion behind this piece? And then you go back and you sort of, is the, the term they use, you rustle mm-hmm. with your writing. Yeah. And so there should be great changes from first to second, <laughs> the uh, third dairy, got it. the fourth and dairy, <laughs> yeah, but, to the... F- yes, 
let's stop there. So that's, that was one of those great nuggets when you talked about that group work in your math, that conversation in the math, and not, and not necessarily just following an explicit set of steps. It made me think of that point in the article that we often think of, we need to have an editing partner, peer mm-hmm. editing. But the article says, we don't want a peer editing. We just want peer response. Yes. And your response be sort of your why, your passions behind the story. This was actually something that I took away to uh, to try something new. Now, for Che and myself, this past year has been highly reflective. And so that word that I kind of grasped onto when I was reading this article was the reflection portion of, of you know, struggling through writing. And as you mentioned, it's that it's that reflection process where the writing actually grows and it changes. So when you have those response groups, what you're really doing is reflecting on your writing. You're sharing your viewpoints, you're sharing your writing with other people, and you're getting the responses so that it gives you an opportunity to reflect. So time is actually going to be, it's going to play a huge part in this. You you do need time to be able to write a great piece. And, and regardless of the subject that you're working on, it can be a science uh, inquiry project and you've got some ideas or, you know, you're going through the decision, the, um, you know, the, what's it called? Third dairy. The third dairy process. No, just, you know, you're going through the design thinking process in science and you've got an idea and you're working on the iteration phase. And when you're iterating something, you're reflecting, you know, why didn't something work? What do we need to do to make changes to make it work so that it will actually be something that is helpful for people? And so that iteration, I think, is so key. You need time for it, for proper iteration, for proper reflection. And, you know, and that is what is going to help your writing to grow. And and our reflective process that we've had in this past year has not, not only helped us grow as podcasters, as radio show hosts, but also has helped us to build really great relationships with people and also has made us great writers, great readers, um, you know, and great teachers. And so, I mean, not that we weren't already. But, you know. I stopped when you said, great writer? (laughs) (laughs) That's me inflating. That's right. You did inflate. Your head actually got three times. I I don't know how we're going to get me out of this recording room after. (laughs) The ego is so big right now. You have to like push my ego through the door. No, but you know that I... I do feel like that reflective process does help. And why can't it help students as well? You know, they're, they're at a, a point at any stage of their writing, at any stage of their math, where they're able to build on their confidence levels uh, just based on really safe and open conversations that they have, not just with their teachers. They get conferences with their teachers all, all the time. What they need is conversations with their peer groups in order to help build their thinking. Uh, so I, I found that piece to be very, very helpful in this article. Prerequisite to so much of this is time. Mm-hmm. Always, and and so many aspects of teaching. When we we don't make time a a solid factor, it's a variable that can change. It allows this rustling with the writing, the struggle to build uh, capacity. These are the when students know they're not stuck and by a rigid time frame, and that we're embracing that rustling and struggling with something doesn't come at the same. Um, progress is every student. Some student might struggle with a rustling with their writing for 15 minutes. Some may rustle with their writing for 32 minutes. And so when we sort of take time away as a factor, it leads more to that mastery learning, that mindset of I'm going to struggle, I'm going to push through, I'm going to find ways, I'm going to converse with my peers, I'm going to find ways to make this work. And the teacher will be part of that process, part of the feedback. Mm-hmm. But in this article, I really stressed that if we get away from as much explicit teaching, 
that this will support students' ability later on to truly be able to write and understand the writing process. I want to just um, differentiate. You said explicit teaching. I think it's more, it's not necessarily the explicit teaching that we want to get away from. It's the... um, the, the rigid guidelines. Yes. You know, that step by step. Because so. as I read the article, I, I, I took a lot of great nuggets, but I also was comparing it apples and oranges, comparing to some of my teaching practices and some of my best lessons, some of, some of the best feedback I've been given from students and parents. Mm-hmm. And some of those are those really explicit lessons where yeah, you're very right. clear, where you give a bunch of steps, where you... Um, articulate a bunch of things you want to include in your paragraph. And maybe when I read this article, it seems a little archaic, but as, as my anecdotal experiences, I've had great experiences as an English teacher from families and parents coming back to the school and saying, my child's never written so much. Look at this. Look at the vocabulary they're using. And I, get, I would then have to go back and say, well, I didn't necessarily let this writer struggle through it. I taught an explicit lesson right, on, yeah. this is how I use vocabulary. Oh, I, I taught an explicit lesson on, this is the different types of, of punctuation. But it comes, one of these things, this article, is it talked about strong students. Yes. And it didn't really make a lot of reference to the struggling student. Yeah. And so as much as I pulled out some really great nuggets from this article, even in terms of how to set up writing scenarios, writing situations, what we can talk about in a second. But I did have a lot of internal thinking of the the flip of the coin where I've had some really powerful experiences teaching explicitly, but maybe not to the sort of the anecdotal situations they implied. The strong student that can provide you, it said it can give you a B plus response almost instantaneously because they know what you're looking for. And so I started to think about that. Um, is that it doesn't necessarily go to apply to everyone. I've had some great experience, but then you really made that great point. It's it, There's a little bit of a differentiation mm-hmm. between explicit teaching and just following steps. But it also reminds me of an, uh, an episode we did earlier that connected the two, that sort of that struggle, that rustling with information and having enough explicit instruction that's created a solid base in your short-term memory that allows you to truly struggle with something that right. allows you to maximize those opportunities. So... I like some of the things on the article, but I also had some anecdotal experiences and some other readings that didn't necessarily say that this is uh, 100%, this is facts. Yeah, no, I think, and, and what we have to focus on here is the balance between those two things, right? Because there, there is a slight difference between explicit teaching, which is important because otherwise, you know, students, you are a source of knowledge in the classroom. You, you bring the resources to the students so that they can learn concepts. And so you still have to be able to do that. But when it comes to something like, you know, writing a five paragraph essay, a student might be brilliant at going into university and all through high school, they've written amazing five paragraph essays. But then when they get to university and you do the exact same brilliant job of writing a five paragraph essay and it comes back with a 62 on it and you're wondering, what did I do wrong here? And, you know, what what it might be lacking is something like voice. It might be lacking something like uh, ingenuity. It might be lacking something like, um, you know, something to separate it from all of the other five paragraph essays that so many students are going to be brilliant at. So I think that when it comes to good writing, it's not the mechanical parts that we're worried about because mechanical parts of writing come uh, easily to students who can follow rigid guidelines. 
But the the voice portion, um, you know, including really great intuitive examples uh, and anecdotes and being able to pull experiences in to make your writing more vivid and lively. Those are the sorts of things that we're looking for in great writing that might be lacking when we get to university because we focus so much on those mechanical parts of the writing. I know. It's my own writing, which isn't very good at all. It's, it's great writing. But the struggle isn't necessarily the rustling with the writing. It's the mechanical. Mm-hmm. Uh, the punctuation throws me off. Spelling throws me off. Because, of course, I've established before, you know, mildly dyslexic. It's spelling is, is not only is it tough, it's infuriating. It's frustrating because you can't move yourself forward. You sit at the keyboard and you should be able to just move on with spell correct. But trust me, when you're spelling so bad and no autocorrect pops right up, your flow is disrupted. Your energy is focused on that. So the mechanics really do hinder yeah. you. And, and it doesn't, it's not solely that I can't be sort of that creative thinker, that I can't rustle with my writing. I can't make extensive changes from draft to draft when my, the mechanical part frustrates me so much that I, I, I can't even enjoy the right. struggle of writing because I can never get there with any energies left. And I tell you this all the time. I tell you this all the time that your spelling and your grammar and your punctuation are not what makes you a great writer. There are people out there that have ghost writers. You know, there are people out there that have somebody else write a book that you will transcribe to them because of that particular reason. Your your ideas and the way that you put your thoughts together, that's what makes you a great writer, right? That's what people are taking from your book. And so when you focus on those those mechanical features, um, those those just hinder you, like you said. They they take they suck all of the energy out of you. So. It's very easy to say to not worry about it, but when you're writing yeah, and you can't do I those agree. things, you can't you you can't just move on, not being able to write or type, and it's f- exceptionally I think, frustrating. I think that's because of the constructs that have been put on students since they were in grade school, right? Because the focus has always been on spelling, grammar. Not to say that those things are not important, but uh, but you, when it comes to being a great writer, I think that those things, those mechanical features should be secondary. I mean, yes, you need to know formats. Yes, you need to know what differentiates a compare and contrast versus something else. Um, but but I think that you have a general handle on those things. The The focus really should be on getting your, your thoughts down coherently and, uh, and comprehensively. And I think that that's what really makes great writing. Somebody else can do that editing process for you to really, um, you know, polish it. But that's all it is. It's just polishing, right? That great leather shoe is already under that polish. If you say so. What do you word for it? I got lost when you said like you could have a ghost writer and I was thinking, who could be my ghost podcaster? Uh, Tim Cavey's Tim doing Cavey. way too much. But wouldn't that be great? Uh, Stephen Hurley would be great. Like these, these yes. superior voices that just dominate the mic. Yep. That would be, that's, that's a big up, that's goals for me. I would like uh, Stephen Hurley's voice to be the voice of my Google Home. <laughs> Your Google Home would be on endlessly. Yes, it would be. <laughs> now, the article gave a, a few great ideas for how to sort of set up some writing. We can talk about that now, or we could take a little break and, and, and come back to that after our three enlightened minutes and sort of talk about some of the things the article talked about, that how you can sort of create that writing culture where it's rustling with the writing. Yeah. It's um, responding with your peers about your, your work rather than just editing your work and always 
Let's let's yeah, let's talk about that afterwards because I think we'll have some great conversation there. So let's get into well, the three light minutes. We can have great conversation if it's under five minutes. <laughs> we could. Do you think you can keep it under five minutes? No. There we go. Unless I don't repeat myself. <laughs> Once I repeat myself, the episode goes from thirty to forty seven minutes instantaneously. <laughs> what happened in this episode? A lot more content? Nah, changes. He got into teacher mode. He just repeated himself over and over again. Seventeen different ways. So people got the message. I for one appreciate that because I'm not listening the first three times just like your grade eight students. You got that right. This is why I say things at seventeen times over. All right, so let's get into our three enlightened minutes. Today we have Monsieur Steve. He is a grade three French immersion teacher from Toronto, Ontario, Canada, right here, our hometown. And uh, he also makes these great uh, teaching videos on YouTube that help to teach students French. And what he's going to be talking to about with us today is creating very safe places and inclusive places in our classrooms, starting at very early ages, uh, just so that, you know, we can really be open and honest and together with one another, especially when we've been so far apart from each other for so long. So here is Monsieur Steve with his three enlightened minutes. Hi, I'm Monsieur Steve, and these are my three enlightened minutes. Uh, so who am I? Uh, I'm formerly a grade two, three, but now grade three French immersion teacher in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Uh, I've also got a kids educational YouTube channel actually named Monsieur Steve, uh, where I make really fun and engaging videos to help you learn French, but it's, uh, you know, so much more than that. Uh, why am I here today? Well, my focus is uh, what I'm really passionate about, and that's creating a safe space in the classroom where kids can be themselves and aren't afraid to take risks and make mistakes, which, you know, really is the backbone of learning. Especially now, after so much time away from an actual classroom with real people, you know, kids need to feel comfortable with you and their peers uh, before any real learning can take place. Um, there's a lot of different ways that this can be done, but first impressions really are everything. Um, that's why I like to make the class as colorful and inviting as possible. Last year, my class theme was Harry Potter, and I came to school on the first day dressed up as a wizard. Uh, it really set the tone for the year and, you know, made for an amazingly fun first day of school. Um, but really what you can do is find out more about your students, you know, and their interests. Uh, I typically do this by sending out a parent questionnaire before school starts, you know, and I plan lessons that tie into those. Uh, I also source books and posters that, you know, cover these topics to make them feel seen. The key is to make sure they look around the class and they feel represented in some way, shape, and or form. Now, when it comes to a lesson, you know, I love to embrace my mistakes, whether they're planned or otherwise, because uh, I'm, I'm human, I make mistakes, and I will use those as teachable moments. The more they see me make mistakes and be okay with it, the more they're comfortable doing the same thing in the class. Um, and finally, you know, the most, most important piece of that puzzle, you need to be real and vulnerable with them. Uh, and this is, I think, the most challenging piece for some people. Um, I recently had a parent tell me something their kid had said, officially totally unsolicited, I swear, that sums it up quite nicely. So this is the quote from uh, the student. Mom, you know why Mr. Steve is one of the best teachers? Because he talks to us. When we talk to him about something, he talks back to us and makes a conversation with us. Uh, so then the parent asked what he meant, like what kind of things. And then the student replied, anything we want to talk about. If we bring something up to him, he listens to us and talks back. He cares about what we care about. You know, that warmed my heart so much. And it really is the goal, right? Letting kids know you care about them and they can always come to you because you'll always be in their corner. Um, now, 
This topic is really important to me because my schooling career was somewhat less than favorable. Growing up, I knew I was different. I was a gay kid. I mean, I didn't know that at the time, but I was, and I grew up quite poor. Nothing about me or my challenges was ever really discussed or normalized, so I never felt comfortable enough to share who I was for fear of being judged and made fun of. I did well in school, okay, but socially and emotionally, not so much. I never felt represented, fully safe to take risks without consequence, or truly belonging within the classroom or school community. So this is one of the main motivating factors that guided me into becoming an educator. So as negative as some of my learning experiences were, they did bring me to the cause today. So by immediate future plans, I really hope to work with my colleagues to prepare for what I'm assuming will be one of our most challenging years yet. We really need to work together to ensure that not only our classrooms, but the entire school broadcasts as a safe space for all kids. We're headed for a school year of unknowns, but it's within our power to make sure we're there for our students on a social and emotional level. But I know we got this, and I can't wait to see my students and coworkers again, no matter what they, you know, end will look like. Uh, anyways, all right, now back to you, Che and Pav. Oh, Monsieur Steve, c'est moi, c'est magnifique, les trois minutes. <laughs> And then help me, how do you say enlightened in French? Enlightened. <laughs> like, I, I don't ask, know. I have to ask any of my children. <laughs> yes. Dad can't help me with French homework. Dad can't help me with math homework or English homework, actually, regardless of what grade it is. But you know what I really liked about that one? As a middle school teacher and a vast experience is that when we're talking about courageous conversations, I know where I can sort of have my starting point with my middle schoolers, know where I can be at. But I don't know if I wanted to have sort of the, the foundations of courageous conversation, whether I could I could be comfortable enough applying them with any effectiveness when I go down to a grade one or grade two class. Yeah. Really great to really, for me, to listen and, and, and know how would you start to address these issues at the younger grades? Because at the older grades, everything that I, any benefits I have, any great teaching I do is the byproduct of all the great teachings that's happened beforehand. <laughs> right. Like the audacity to think, oh, I'm going to teach something great today. My students are the byproduct of years and years of great teaching. So when you want to have effective, courageous conversations in middle school, it's not because you just decided in grade eight to do it. These students have had great teaching all, all along. It was really great to sort of hear in the primary grades, how do you set these conversations up? How do you get our students really thinking openly and inclusively and it was a really powerful segment thank you yeah so it was great thank you mr steve um we were talking about helicopter teaching and you know how we can sort of avoid helicopter teaching because just like helicopter parenting it doesn't really allow our students to you know branch out of the bubble of you know within their classroom space and you know within the space of this is what the teacher wants you to do so they're going to do it based on the guidelines that the teacher sets up for them so you know, we, we want to sort of get out of the helicopter teaching and not necessarily the explicit teaching, but helicopter teaching, sort of hovering around your, your students and making sure they're doing... Giving so many steps yeah. that students no longer think that they just got to follow the steps. That's it. Give me, give me all these, these checklists and all these rubrics and I no longer need to think, I no longer need to write. Uh, the argument of the paper is that I'm just going to do what needs to be done. Of course, the article does fixate on the stronger student. And so that student that draft one to draft three will have almost no difference because they know how to please your teacher. They know how to be compliant right from the beginning. I got to dive back because I mentioned this at the beginning was lawnmower parenting. Yes. Please tell me what uh, that means and not what I'm envisioning. Hal Bowman was uh, listening to him talk about it. And he was talking about the idea of the lawnmower is that you remove all obstacles 
not as a helicopter where you're hovering, but you do it ahead of time. You mm. remove any possible obstacle that might possibly get in the way of your child's progress, and you you know, mow that lawn, and you right. make it clean and no bumps. It's like going to the golf range, so no kid's going to step and and trumble, uh, you know, step in a little divot and roll their ankle, so to speak. You take care of the lawn in front of them, so they have a nice, smooth path. So the concept of the lawnmower parent, which now make the lawnmower teacher, do I remove anything that's going to prevent struggle yeah. to, for that? It's almost like that compliance. So I thought of that lawnmower that's, uh, analogy. That's exactly what I thought of is, is removing the struggle. And even with helicopter teaching, that's what you're doing is you're removing the struggle. You're saying you're going to face these struggles when you're when you're trying to solve this problem, unless I give you the and steps. The lawnmower, I think, is that you hide that there is any struggle. The helicopter right. implies that you're there. And then if you start to stumble, I'll pick you up. Right. The lawnmower is like, I'm going to fool you into think there is no struggle yeah. coming. Yeah. Follow this pathway. So, you know, what I'm picking up from that is that we need that struggle. We need that struggle for the students. We need that struggle, uh, you know, for the entire class to exist so that we can work through it together so they can work through it either on their own or with their peers um, just to get to some sort of a result. And, you know, you were mentioning there was actually a, a two questions that were at the end of the article that were posted, and I thought that they were really great Um for, you know, to reflect on after you read the article. And the very first one was, how might you model the writing struggle for your student writers? How could you model productive struggle in another discipline? And and it started making me think about, you know, when we are vulnerable with our students, um, it really helps them to connect with us. And I've had situations in my class where I have gotten stuck on a math problem while it's up, you know, under the document camera and students are listening to me teach a lesson and I'm like, oh, wait. I'm already getting anxious just at the thought of it. Yeah, I don't know how to, what to do next. And, you know, the first couple of times you do this, you feel embarrassed and you feel anxious and you feel, you know, all of those things like I should know how to do this. Why don't I know how to do this? And I'm getting, you know, I'm sweating over here. Um, and then there were a couple of times a little bit later uh, where, you know, the students in the class were just like, oh, miss, well, you know, you just do this and this and this and then and then you got it. And I was like, oh, thank you. You know, I didn't pick up on that, but we struggled together. And there was somebody in the in the class that knew how to solve the problem. And I didn't know how. And I didn't say to the class, well, well you know, you're not supposed to. Know. I'm, I'm the teacher. I'm supposed to know how to do this. You know, I welcomed the information. I welcomed the help. I was appreciative. I told the student that I appreciated their help. And that way they were able to see me as human. And I offered up that vulnerability in my class. And that makes it safe for other people to also do that in the classroom because they see that the teacher is open to making mistakes in front of each other. And so they can also feel comfortable sharing something that they might feel is not at the same level as some of the stronger students in the class. It just makes the inclusivity, it makes everybody a little bit more comfortable in that classroom. Those are great points. Thank you. I have to try that one time in gym class. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Jean is going to intentionally serve this ball underneath the net just to know what it's like to miss a serve. <laughs> and of course, I'm only joking because the joke in gym class is that whenever I miss a serve, it's an automatic redo because mm-hmm. I get to do it. And I get to mastery. Yes. I get to go off and serve 17 in a row. Just don't go back and look at the six I put in the net in between those 17 in a row. Yep. Um, the story 
the story. The article talked a couple of, <laughs> maybe it was a story. Maybe I've turned it's it into a story. a story for my better understanding. Yes. Um, gave a couple of good, solid takeaways to sort of building a writing program is that try to avoid endlessly using writing prompts and find other things to generate writing activities, whether it be mm-hmm. a comic, whether yes. it be a piece of art, whether it be a piece of music. So there isn't necessarily an immediate right answer. There isn't necessarily a clear path of where the writing should be. And then, as I talked about before, really find a different um, purpose for having that not editing buddy, that response buddy. Mm-hmm. Talk about what's your purpose of your writing. What are you trying to get to? And generate discussion so that you go back and then you really do draft. And there is a difference from one to two to third dairy. To third dairy. And that was sort of my great takeaway. And and when I thought about my teaching, again, we talked about that before, I've, the explicit teaching really does have some does have some value. It works. And I like that you differentiate between explicit teaching and just getting endless checklists for, for students. That was something where I have seen great results. So you don't necessarily, because the article does focus on the stronger students, mm-hmm. be mindful that not necessarily going to apply across the board. When you're in a classroom, you got to gauge every student and you got to see where they're at. I see you pointing your finger at me. Yeah, I just, I did also want to point out that there's, there's actually nothing wrong with creating uh, step lists or, you know, uh, guides, uh, checklists or, you know, steps to follow. But the idea is that we have to create them together. We have to be able to get through the struggle together so that we can create something that can maybe offer us a little bit of help along the way. So there's nothing wrong with the checklist. There's nothing wrong with the creating success criteria even. Um, but it's, it's when it's given to you, when it's handed to you by the teacher and say, here, just follow these five steps and you're good to go. I think that that's where the, where the, tr- the trouble is. Well, one big takeaway when I teach kids for 195 days, minus the 37 sick days I take, yes. is that I just don't want to teach the same way every time. Every style has a certain value. Every student gets a takeaway or a different takeaway. So whether it be explicit or checklist or struggling with writing, my comfort level here is I want to make sure that I'm differentiating my instruction techniques, Mm -hmm. that I don't want to teach language the same way 195 times, that if I mix it up, inherently students will pick up, they'll appreciate the different styles of lessons, and also keep me as a teacher a little bit more fresh, Mm -hmm. rather than getting so stoic and so stuck in the same style of lesson, even if it's a great lesson. I think there's value in maybe not using the greatest technique every time, but having variety in how you teach your lesson. I'm going to jump to math, not that I would know anything about it, but maybe one day I teach my high end, like it's my best lesson. And the second day I just change my lesson around. It might not be as valuable or might not be as good a lesson, but there's overall value in teaching a variety of different ways. Right. Yeah. Uh, And I think in the bigger package that in... That's what I want to do as a teacher. I just want to be comfortable not teaching the same way all the time and understanding there's value in every way that I teach. Indeed, absolutely. I think we both took away a lot of great stuff from this article. Again, it's called The Curse of Helicopter Teaching by Penny Kittle and Kelly Gallagher. And we have included the link for the article in our episode show notes so that you can go and read it if you like to. I thought it was a great read. And like we said, we had it in the back on the back burner for quite some time. It's a great read. Because mm-hmm. I'm thinking about it after I've read it. Yes. And I agree with some and other parts. I'm like, oh, I see a hole here. Oh, I'm not sure about this. Yeah. It's like going to a good movie. How do I know if it's a good movie? Am I still thinking about it afterwards? Yes. And I'm still thinking about this article. And you know what also makes it better is when we have the opportunity to reflect on it and talk about it and with po- share our thoughts. With popcorn. With popcorn. Of Butter. course. There's a huge bowl of popcorn sitting here. 
Let's wrap this thing up. I like it. All right. So thank you for joining us today for the Staff Room Podcast, episode 49. Are you a helicopter teacher? And uh, we I'm just starting a lot more. Don't mow over me. All right, guys. So we'll join you again next week. And tune into the drive. I know we're recording this right before we get into the drive. Tune into the drive on uh, Friday mornings, usually at 9 a.m. Remember to inspire, don't require. Always, always be. A humble servant and education never never dies. dies. You've been listening to the Staff Room Podcast with Jay and Pav. Written, performed, and produced by Jay Cheney and Pav Wander in association with School Rubric, an online magazine and website designed for international and global educators. You can stay connected with Jay and Pav by visiting their Twitter and Instagram pages. And also, check out their articles related to each episode on the School Rubric webpage. All links are provided in the episode write-up. The podcast is recorded weekly at their in-class studio and performed in front of a live studio audience. Be sure to join Jay and Pav next week because there's always something to talk about in the staff room.